Hello and welcome back to part two of our Highlander 2 episode of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. As always, I am your host, Jack Chambers, and as always, the two teams of titular Sequelizers are joining me, the princes of the sequelverse, Alec Plowman, Hello. And Stuart Ashen. Good evening. Unless it's the morning. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and the team known as Too High, Too Lander, Tim Matum. Hello. And Matt Stogden. Hello, friends. (laughs) (laughs) Let's give the listeners a quick recap of your cast and all that good stuff. And the brief little bit of a tease we gave at the last episode before we dig into your pitches, please, gentlemen. Princes, why don't you kick me off, please? Highlander 2, The Endgame, 1989. Directed by Don Coscarelli. He did Phantasm and he did... The Mighty Beastmaster. Also went on to do Bubba Hotep. Have you ever seen that? It was very good. Returning cast, Brenda McLeod will be played once again by Roxanne Hart. And the mighty late great Sheila Gish will be reprising her role as Rachel Ellenstein. New cast, we've got Josh Brolin as Declan McLeod. We've got Morgan Freeman as Robert Wakelin. We've got Robert Zadar as Kraken and... Everybody's favourite, Michael Ironside as Enforcer Parr. And Stuart Copeland will be returning to do the score. And if he doesn't do a better job this time, he's getting a slap. (laughs) Elevator pitch. 20 years after the events of Highlander, Connor McLeod's son must join forces with a group of renegades to stop a crazed immortal who is slowly enslaving the human race. Over to Too High Too Lander for your cast in Elevator Pitch, please, sirs. And title. So our title is Highlander, Live by the Sword. Uh, We're having it released in 1994, uh, and our director is John Woo, uh, he of the slow motion and the doves. (laughs) (laughs) That literally is the image that springs to mind whenever I think of him. I always think of the video game Stranglehold. (laughs) Oh, man. That was like three pounds eight seconds after it was released. So good. So good. (laughs) It's not bad either. I really enjoyed it. Our returning cast is Christopher Lambert as Connor McLeod and Roxanne Hart as Brenda McLeod, uh, formerly Wyatt. And in our new cast, we have Mila Jovovich as Elsa McLeod, Jeff Fahey as Ferric Arno, Ben Affleck as Casey Arno, Ewan McGregor as Quinn, and Alyssa Milano as Valerie. And then for the score, we have Graham Ravel who provide the score for things like The Crow, Street Fighter, Strange Days, uh, a lot of good 90s action stuff. Uh, Elevator Pitch is a mysterious organisation searches for a way to harness the power of the quickening, training a champion to challenge McLeod, while Connor and his daughter travel to Ramirez's old home for answers to a series of troubling visions. So settle yourself in, listeners. We'll get stuck into... The Princes of the Sequelverse, and your pitch, please, sirs. We open to see Brenda McLeod, wife of the immortal Connor McLeod, sitting in a dark room surrounded by armed guards. She has been aged up 20 years using slightly unconvincing 80s makeup. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Enforcer Parr finishes a call on his huge brick of a mobile phone. He says they'll be here any minute and that the master is on his way too. 
Angry, he turns to Brenda, saying that he can't believe she did this and that she can't possibly get away with it. Suddenly, boom, a truck smashes through the far wall of the room, killing several guards. Taken completely by surprise, Par and his men engage in a fierce firefight with a group of people who have poured out of the truck. Brenda manages to crawl over to them and Par orders his men to stop firing in case they hit her. The truck pulls away and Par and his men run out to a van of their own to give chase. The truck screeches down roads, but Par's van is faster. One of his men asks if they should open fire on the truck's tyres. He says not to take the risk. They have a full tank of gas and that the truck has to stop sometime. Inside the truck, Brenda says she needs to be taken to her son Declan. The driver says they don't know where her son is and that they're taking her to Rachel. She replies that he's already with Rachel. She just doesn't know it yet. One of the other people in the van tells him to brace themselves as he's got a clear shot. He raises a large homemade pipe weapon to his shoulder, points it out of the back of the truck and fires. With a deep boom, the front of Parr's van is punched in that swerves off the road. Parr calls for a pickup and is assured that all will be fine as the master knows where the truck is going. The truck pulls up alongside a smaller van and everyone gets out. The driver is agitated and says they have to keep moving, but a distinguished older man, Robert Wakelin, says they can afford to catch their breath for five minutes. With him is Connor McLeod's adopted daughter, Rachel Ellenstein, aged up to look elderly. She embraces Brenda and says they need to find Declan as he's their only hope. But before Brenda can respond, there is a screeching of tyres and a large motorcycle pulls up. Robert mutters, how did he find us so fast? Before screaming at everyone to get in the vehicles. A terrifying beast of a man gets off the bike and advances on them, wielding a sword and a huge metal shield. He is Kraken. They open fire on him, but the shield deflects the bullets, and he keeps advancing. Brenda, Rachel, and Robert run for the van, but Kraken tries to put himself in their way, brutally slaughtering anyone near him. They manage to get round him, but Brenda is hit by friendly fire and starts bleeding out. Rachel tends to her wound as they speed away. Having killed the others, Kraken runs over to his motorcycle to discover it's been shot to pieces. Furious, he lifts it over his head and throws it into a river. The van pulls up outside an abandoned church. Robert and Rachel carry Brenda inside where a young man, her son Declan MacLeod, rushes over to her. Everyone is shocked. They knew him as David, a runaway they picked up five years ago. Rachel can't believe that she's been right next to Connor's son for that long without knowing. The dying Brenda takes her son's hand and tells him that he can't stay hidden any longer. He's now old enough to fight back and must do so before it's too late. She says he will know where he is soon, that he must find the Codex. What happened to his father must not happen to him. Declan asks what the Codex is, but before anyone can answer, a cry of they're here goes out. Brenda tells them to leave her and run. They do so. Parr and Kraken enter the building with their men. Whilst Parr carefully checks for ambushes, Kraken walks right up to the dying Brenda and holds his face an inch from hers and stares into her eyes. Suddenly Parr shouts, Stand back, you idiot, the master is here! Kraken immediately pulls back and stands to the side as an unaged Connor MacLeod, played by Christopher Lambert, walks into the church and cradles Brenda in his arms. He says she should have believed in him and that he always knows what is best. He knows everything. Her last act before dying is to spit blood in his face. In the van, Rachel asks what happened to Connor. Declan explains how his father won the prize, which made him empathic to all human beings and enabled him to very loosely read their thoughts. Robert says that they know that part. Anyone that stands up to him has to keep moving constantly, as he always knows roughly where they are. Rachel asks how Declan exists, since Connor told her immortals cannot have children. He explains that part of the prize was the ability to have children and grow old and die. 
but his father became increasingly erratic and rejected the second part. Rachel asks what happened to him, and Declan says he thinks the constant connection to other people drove him mad. Robert says we all know what happened next. He started to manipulate events to put himself in charge, and started killing anyone who stood in his way. Now he won't stop until he's the immortal god-emperor of humanity or something. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's in character. He then asks what makes Declan so special that they've wasted countless lives on him. Declan replies that, ironically, he's the only person alive who his father has no empathic connection to, so he can act with impunity. There is a moment of silence, then Rachel asks Declan if he remembers when his father was kind. He replies that he does not. Robert parks the van outside a public park. Declan asks what they're doing there, and he responds that this is where he hid the codex after his friend, the immortal Sunder Castagir, gave it to him 30 years ago. Rachel asks what it is. He says it's a book. Declan asks what's in it. He says he has no idea, as Castagir said that the content should be kept totally secret unless a special person comes along in time of need. And that very much sounds like now. Robert retrieves the codex from a buried box and gives it to Declan. He says that its secrets are now his, and importantly, he must not tell anyone else in case his father picks up on the contents. Declan sits alone and looks at the codex. It's just a single sheet of paper in an old folder. Talking to himself, it seems to be a set of rules for the immortals, beginning with the classic no fighting on holy ground. Interestingly, there seems to be serious supernatural consequences for breaking the rules, which could be the key to defeating his father, who may not know them all. Declan reads some extra notes about the nature of the prize, and is surprised. He calls Robert and Rachel over, but before she reaches him, Rachel gasps as a sword pierces through her chest from behind. Kraken is here, and has sneaked up on them. Declan screws up the codex and puts it in his pocket as Kraken knocks Robert unconscious with a vicious blow. Kraken advances on Declan, saying that Daddy wants a word. Declan pulls a short sword out from his bag and attacks him. Although the boy has some skill, he is absolutely no match for Kraken, who is far stronger, better trained, and more experienced. Kraken toys with him for a while before he says, Enough. You come with me to Daddy now or I'll hurt you first. Declan says never and stabs himself with his own sword. Kraken is horrified, as he's clearly supposed to take the boy alive. He rushes over to Declan, who removes the sword from himself and stabs Kraken in the heart. He falls down dead, and Declan takes his sword. A groggy Robert asks what has happened. Declan just says that both Rachel and Kraken are dead, and hands the codex to him for safekeeping. Robert asks if the codex said that children of immortals are immortal themselves. Declan confirms, and Robert replies that it's a hell of a risk to take on an old book. He asks what they do now, and Declan replies that they wait. Within minutes, Enforcer Parr arrives with a group of men. Declan says he wants an audience with his father. Parr replies, good to see you again, kid. You're doing the right thing. You know you can't run from him forever. He looks down and sees Kraken's corpse and smiles. I won't miss him. Come on, both of you. Declan and Robert are brought to a vast room in an expensive office complex where Connor McLeod awaits. He readies his katana and tells Declan to take up the Kraken sword to show him what he's got. Again, Declan attacks, but is completely outclassed. Connor is disappointed and says he's learned nothing since he ran away five years ago. While sparring, Declan asks why Connor feels the need to dominate humanity. He says Declan doesn't understand. There are just too many people and he is overwhelmed by their thoughts and feelings. Mankind needs to be severely culled, then he can create prosperity for the survivors. 
Declan counters that he has learned the true nature of the prize. It was designed to give empathy to the heartless. It was assumed that the winner would be the most ruthless of the immortals, such as the Kurgan, but it went to someone who was already caring and kind, and destroyed him as a result. But Connor is totally uninterested, asking if he read that in the Codex, and saying how he looks forward to reading it himself shortly, as Robert has it in his pocket. Suddenly, Connor staggers as he is hit repeatedly by gunfire. Pa has emptied his entire clip into him. He shouts, Take his head, kid! But instead, Declan drops his sword to the floor. Connor is furious, screaming, Your job is to enforce my will! Pa replies, And what choice did you give me, you maniac? Connor says he'll get even with him later. Connor is pleased that Declan has laid down his weapon, saying that it is inevitable he joins him and rules alongside him. But Declan says, Father, I won't fight you. You must focus yourself. Not everything is as you think. I, too, am immortal. Connor is taken aback, saying that's impossible. Declan asks if he felt something from Kraken before he was killed. Connor searches his memory, and his face falls to shock. I thought this was impossible. I thought this was over. I thought I was the last. Declan says that it's not too late, and that if only Connor focuses his mind, he can return to the good man he once was. There is silence for a long moment. Then Connor pulls his son in close and whispers, There can be only one, before decapitating him. Declan's lifeless body falls to the floor. Lightning flashes and electrical lights explode as the quickening begins. Connor holds out his arms to receive the energy, but something is different. Demonic beings form in the lightning, but they do not enter McLeod's body. Instead, they begin tearing at him. He starts screaming and they drag him down into the floor. Then all is quiet. Pa turns to Robert and asks what the hell just happened. Robert replies, I guess there's a rule about not killing your own kids. Declan sacrificed himself to save us all. After a pause, Pa asks what they do now. Robert replies, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this fucking sheet of paper. <laughs> Morgan Freeman, comedy sidekick. <laughs> Over to Too High to Lander for your pitch, please, sirs. Connor MacLeod and a young woman, both dressed in traditional Highland garb, race on horseback across the mountainous Scottish landscape. The young woman urges her horse Banshee on to victory, and she smiles smugly back at Connor. The two figures crest a hill and approach a castle in the distance with the 4x4 parked outside. A title card reads, 2003, the distant future. It doesn't read that bit, but, you know, (laughs) for audiences of the time it would be. Both riders are greeted by Brenda, and we learn that the young woman is their daughter, Ailsa. And the three of them live in a simple, isolated existence in the Scottish Highlands. The quickening has left Connor bombarded with the thoughts of others, and he practices a mix of meditation and martial arts to keep his focus. Elsa joins him in sword training, but is clearly reckless and impetuous, while her disciplined father craves a life of peace. Elsewhere, in a large mansion filled with antiques, Ferric Arno pours over ancient texts that map bloodlines across the generations. We see he is trying to trace his ancestry back to various immortals, but is unable to conclusively prove a link. Frustrated, he throws his books aside. An assistant tells Ferric that the latest shipment has arrived, and we follow him to a training room. There, more of Ferric's goons shepherd teenage runaways into a central dojo, the walls of which are lined with weapons. A swaggering Casey Arno enters with a longsword, and tells the group to pick a blade, and if they can draw blood they will be rewarded. The runaways arm themselves and attack, but Casey defeats them all effortlessly. He approaches his father, announcing that he is ready, but Ferric strikes him, telling him to know his place, and that if they are to have any hope, 
they must be sure he can best MacLeod. In the Highlands, Connor and Elsa are respectively haunted by dreams of battles, bloodshed, and the shadowy face of Ferric. Seeking answers, Connor announces he will consult the centuries of immortal lore that Ramirez accumulated and hid away in a Spanish villa. Elsa insists on coming with them, eager to see a world she's been denied. Connor reluctantly agrees. As the two travel south, Elsa is once again seized by visions. Connor attempts to calm her, but in her panic, she knocks the steering wheel, causing the car to veer into oncoming traffic, where it is struck by a heavy truck. Clambering from the wreckage, Connor pulls Elsa free, but it's too late. She has been killed. With a mighty bellow that only Christopher Lambert can do. <laughs> Connor channels the energies of the quickening into her body. Sounds much worse than the other. <laughs> she, re- uh, she returns to life, but her body cannot contain the power, and lightning bolts erupt from her, shooting up into the sky. His power spent, Connor feels his life fading, but is able to say goodbye to his daughter before he dies, telling her she is his greatest victory. At Ferric's mansion, ancient instruments spring to life and Ferric scrambles into action, tracking the energy of the quickening as it disperses around the world. Casey asks how this affects their plan. Picking up a dagger, Ferric tells him that everything has changed, then turns around and plunges it into Casey's chest. Casey staggers back, shocked, before falling down dead. In the Highlands, Elsa lays Connor's body to rest on a high peak, taking Ramirez's katana and marking the grave with her sword, which bears the name of MacLeod. In a nearby village, she calls home from a telephone box, but hangs up when her mother answers, unable to say what has happened. Painful visions once again swim through her head, and she heads out into the rain, flagging down a passing car for a ride. A brief montage shows Elsa's journey across Europe to Seville, Spain. Reaching the ancient villa, she discovers it has been thoroughly ransacked. Exploring the ruins, Elsa encounters Quinn, a masked warrior who goads her into a duel, but she quickly outmatches him and he yields. Removing his mask, he reveals that he was blinded by the man who led the raid on the villa years ago, leaving him unable to prevent the theft of relics, ancient texts, and leading to the death of everyone else present. Quinn explains his family have guarded and preserved the library for generations, but now all are gone, killed by Ferric. You see where we're keeping the Highlander mantle. We're casting a Scottish person as a Spaniard. (laughs) (laughs) And an Eastern European woman as a Scot. (laughs) Come at us. In the mansion, Casey is resurrected as an immortal. Ferric explains to his disorientated son that he only discovered his own immortal heritage after the gathering when the quickening energies had been awarded to Connor MacLeod. With Connor's death, the energies are free again, and with Casey's help, they can locate this new generation of immortals take their lives before the powers awaken and win the game before it even begins. We cut to a montage of young people being abducted worldwide by Ferric's mercenaries and brought to cells beneath Ferric's mansion. One girl, Valerie, manages to slip loose from the guards but is killed by Casey before she can escape. Ferric slaps his son, warning him to be careful. While still mortal, the prisoners will be easy to control, but a group of immortals is harder to deal with. Casey is clearly shaken, confessing Valerie's death felt different that he could feel the life force leave her. Ferret returns to his work and orders his son to take the body to a secure cell. Quinn guides Ailsa to a secret cavern beneath the villa, which is unlocked with the handle of Ramirez's katana. Stepping alone into the simple catacomb, Ailsa peruses a few scrolls before her head is thrown back. Through a pain-free vision, she witnesses the imprisoned immortals and Valerie's death. At the centre of the room is an empty rack. 
Elsa returns Ramirez's katana before being drawn to a Chinese Tao, which she grabs before returning to the surface. That's a sword, mm. for those who don't know. Finding Quinn at the top of the villa's central tower, Elsa relays what she has seen. The blind man looks over the horizon, stating that something feels different, before swiftly clambering over the battlement and falling to his death. Elsa cries out before descending the tower and finding Quinn's mangled body in the courtyard. She is startled as Quinn returns to life, thrilled by the fact he is a true immortal. Furthermore, despite remaining blind, he can sense Elsa's presence and that of immortals all over the world, most of whom are gathered in New York. Getting to his feet, Quinn seems driven. Unsheathing his sabre, he performs a series of moves, incorporating the whip attached to his hip. The whole thing resembles an elegant but dangerous dance. As his sword thrusts through the air, Quinn becomes more aggressive, muttering about revenge. Finally, his sword clashes with Elsa's, who explains that revenge is not what is needed, that this new generation of immortals need a leader. Consumed with rage and power, Quinn spars with Elsa, his strikes less restrained. Through the fight, Elsa manages to assuage Quinn, whose calm returns as the quickening powers settle into his system. He begs Elsa's forgiveness, saying he is unfit to lead, but she commends Quinn, saying that her father taught her, if you want something, you have to be willing to fight for it. Asking if the villa has a phone, because it's fucking old, Elsa calls her mother, finally able to explain what has happened, and stating she needs something sent to America. In New York, Ferrick and Casey are moving the pre-immortals and the resurrected Valerie to the church, where the Kurgan once confronted MacLeod. The church is closed for renovations and is covered in scaffolding. Ferrick explains to Casey that on holy ground, the energies of the quickening can be captured and channeled into the exposed heart of a single host. Ferrick then nods, signalling his men to mow down the pre-immortals with machine gun fire. As the immortals slowly return to life, Casey reluctantly moves to decapitate them. Quinn's whip cracks out across the church, disarming Casey. Ferrick, recognising him, says he regrets letting him live. Quinn retorts, mocking Ferrick for being too much of a coward to die and become immortal himself. The assembled henchmen set on Quinn, who evades them among the scaffolding. Angered, Ferrick retrieves a large odachi, which is a very big Japanese sword, and begins slaughtering the immortals himself. As the quickening energies swirl around the scaffolding, the church doors burst open. Roosting doves scatter. <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. Yep. As Elsa rides in on Banshee, she charges at Ferric, who defends himself. Dismounting, the two duel as the rest of the room erupts in a manic brawl, with new immortals swarming Ferric's mercenaries. Ferric gains the upper hand and pins Elsa to a stone column. Producing a short sword, Ferric attempts to kill the unarmed Valerie, but Casey parries the blow. The young man pleads that there must be another way. Betrayed, Ferric lashes out as his son, explaining he was saving him for last, but if he's so eager to die, he will oblige him. Plunging the short sword into Casey's heart, he spins his son around. The energies circling the room dive bomb towards Casey before Ferric pushes him out of the way at the last second and absorbs the collected power. The room watches on, stunned, as Ferric conjures a sword of pure light, causing most of the goons to scatter. Pulling the Odachi loose, Ailsa launches herself at Ferric and the two duel. With sparks of energy flying from the clashing blades, Quinn leads the remaining immortals away and Casey guides a cautious Valerie to a hidden rear exit. Ferric boasts that once he has defeated Elsa, he will claim the prize unopposed thanks to the death of MacLeod. 
With a series of bone-shattering strikes, the emotionally charged Elsa screams that she will oppose him and introduces herself as Elsa of Clan MacLeod, daughter of Connor and heir to his legacy. His focus faltering, Ferric's blade flickers and disappears. Stood over her adversary, Elsa proclaims, There can be only one, and you're not him, before beheading him. From outside the church, the congregated immortals are struck by a portion of the quickening energies which escape the building. Elsa exits the church where Quinn explains that some have fled, others have remained, but they are all no doubt frightened and confused. Stabilising the exhausted Elsa, Quinn reminds her that with a new generation of immortals awakened, the contest for the prize will begin again, and next time they meet, they may not be allies. Elsa lifts her head and smiles, saying that the last game belonged to their fathers. Perhaps it's time for something new. And then they fuck. <laughs> oh yeah yep. it's <laughs> also the runtime of that film was 8 minutes so the sex scene is now an and a half yes. so <laughs> obviously oh and that's a sword by the way and uh, during the sex scene the voice of Ramirez just <laughs> you, you still have your life and I'm loving this shit interesting pitches gentlemen I, I enjoyed both but I do have some questions for you and I'll come over to the princes of the sequel verse first so Let's let's talk about Connor McLeod, shall we? The big reveal, Lambert is back. And there's a moment where Pa kind of turns on him and betrays him. And he's kind of just like, Dad, don't worry about it. It's fine. I feel like he would like kick more of his ass than he did. He just seems to not give a fuck about it, which kind of, I don't know, necessarily undermines the moment, but kind of like... It's kind of a callback to the first one where Clancy Brown is shot up with an Uzi and it doesn't really worry him that much. It's sort of there to prove that uh, McLeod is, well, basically untouchable, but also that he knows he will always get them in the end. You know, his power doesn't even bother running. He literally just stays in the room because he knows from much personal experience that McLeod will know where he is and fuck him up at his leisure. (laughs) I think that's Highlander 6, isn't it? Fuck him up at his leisure. (laughs) (laughs) That's the anime (laughs) adaptation of the universe. (laughs) Oh, God. And I thought it was an interesting thing of empathy being a corrupting power. And obviously it's playing on the absolute power corrupts absolutely because the prize is absolute power. I see everything, I know everything kind of thing. And I'm not going to do the audiences thing. Don't worry, Stuart. But (laughs) no audiences in this universe because nobody goes to see Highlander 2. They're not falling for that one again. Exactly. But empathy is kind of seen as this positive thing for the most part in the universe. I basically just want to explain what the what the thought process was behind turning. Oh, it totally is. Uh, the thing is, um, it's specifically designed the prize to be given to a vicious bastard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's, so when he's it goes too to nice, somebody, so yeah, exactly. Because that is one of my problems with McLeod in the first film. He's a bit too goody goody. Do you know what I mean? And so I quite liked uh, fiddling on that. But no, I wanted something a bit. A bit crazy and a bit weird. My original, I had a completely different draft of this first, where the immortals had actually been sent to Earth to have this gathering to find the most powerful one in order to prepare mankind to fight against an alien invasion. From Planet Zeist. From Planet Zeist. (laughs) I wasn't going to call it Planet Zeist just because I hate Handa 2 so much. But um, I had all that together, and the the two problems with it were, one, didn't feel very Highlander-y, 
Kind of like it, Last Starfighter almost. Like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was going <laughs> to have McLeod's yeah. empathy thing was going to be like a bit like battle meditation from Star Wars and this kind of stuff. But the other problem with it was it felt too big and too cool. It's like, this is Highlander. I want this to you feel like this. some <laughs> sort of slightly crazy direct v- VHS thing where, you know, um, I don't even have any callbacks or flashback sequences in it because they'd probably be too expensive. It does have that know. Deadpool 2 mindset of... Uh, I know it's not out yet, but it, when, you know the director wanted to go bigger and bigger and bigger. They said, "No, no, no." One of the reasons this first film worked is because it was a pushed budget, low grungy, and I think that's the kind of thing about Highlanders. I don't necessarily think charm is the right word. No, but but I, I think we it's both picked 80s. up on that, didn't yeah. we? Well, we get, From the pictures, yeah, our, certainly. Our, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Both of us have done stories that are epic in their own right, but only within the Highlander universe. Plus, I'll be honest, the alien thing. Once I had it together, it's a little bit dull. Yeah, I wanted something absolutely yeah. mental. Yeah. Sticking with aliens for a second, from a galaxy far, far away a long time ago and shit. Perhaps from the planet Zeist. Probably, which got blown up by the Death Star. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, Return of the Jedi, but then I think that's the thing, where you've got evil dads and kids who are trying to redeem them sort of thing. So, is that a fact? Yeah, that was, that was a little in the back of my head, and I wanted it to go the other way, where, where he is literally irredeemable, because he's just been messed up. But it's also that thing where, of course, and something that both pitches do, Highlander makes a big deal out of parents. And be that you can be a parent if you are the one. And then Highlander 2 does nothing with that. He literally gains the ability to have children. Nah. The biggest, yeah. most interesting story is what happens next. And they just go, fuck, he just gets old. He just, In fact, into- he just, he just we- doesn't, is the answer. <laughs> we both brought back Wyatt as a character. And both had her married to him. Because yeah. surely that would follow, not just... Oh, well, that's different now, and he's oh, a scientist. Oh, save me from the radiation. Oh, no, I'm dead. <laughs> Make sure you use all your fucking powers to do something useful. We never had sex, but I did die from radiation. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. Cook the planets. That'll solve it. Yep. <laughs> Put it Cook- in a bubble. Oh, mm, don't get me started on cooking the planet again. Jack, with your with your encyclopedic knowledge of all, all the Highlander Jesus. spin-offs, <laughs> do, they, do they ever do, like, future generations? Of they do, yes. Yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, there's many descendants of the McLeods later on, and some of them are far off into the future and bouncing back and forth and stuff. And little Billy McLeod, three, three goes back and is <laughs> Zeisty sort of a McLeod. Three is a prequel, and then they try to get four is them trying to bring the TV series in with Duncan. I mean, that's is guaranteed something yeah. fucking stupid. Exactly. Yeah, I think the yeah. only other Highlander I have actually seen is the cartoon. Oh from like God, the that's fucking 90s. terrible! Oh, yeah. I'd always secretly hope that was all right. I've never seen it, but the anime is the only good one. Yeah. The cartoon kind of looks a little bit like Dragon's Lair, almost Ooh, like yeah, this yeah, weird like kind yeah. of just really minimalist armor design. It's te- fucking terrible animation. It's just all I can remember is that looking. you had a boomerang in it. Oh, yeah. that's, that's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, cut people's heads off at a distance. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Oh, I'm guessing there's not a lot of decapitation cats. in that there cartoon. <laughs> there is some, I believe. There is a boomerang decapitation is all I saw from my research, pretty much. There is a compilation of all the decapitations across the Highlander franchise. <laughs> nice. Death, Did you hear death, that, death. listeners? If you fucking hate yourself, go and seek that out. <laughs> I mean, all this bloody sword fighting. And they're just carpet bombing with napalm. Then when he's on fire, take his head off. It you does. Know? It's, it's or the, taser him or something. It's, it's the Gremlins 2 conversation of, Hang on, so here are the rules. And I love that Gremlins 2 does that, where they get they, they say, these are the rules of how a gremlin becomes an evil gremlin. And I say, hang on, so if they're eating after midnight, that's right. What happens if you get a bit of sesame seed stuck in your tooth and you eat it later? Does that count? And it's the same thing with like, getting your head cut When off. does after midnight stop? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On Which what time, time zone? zone? Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas the getting your head cut off is like, what happens if you burn to a crisp and you don't? Ha- your head is literally separated from your neck at that point. Does that count? Or is it the severing the neck? Yeah, so many fucking if you're questions. Burnt and crushed to ashes and dust. Yeah. If you're squished completely into a flat disc, and your head is like there is there is a head crushing oh, in one of the in one of the other Highlander ones. I remember there was where a- it's almost like a hot fuzz style, where it's just like a huge thing lands on its yeah. head and it just kind of implodes. But yeah, weird. What if you lock them in a box under the ocean? Would they suffocate or would they? They don't suffocate. They would just be there forever. Basically. So they, they don't die. Vampire. It's very it's very vampire. They established that mm. bit that he can breathe indefinitely underwater. Oh, because he's got that one, fucking training scene yeah. where he's like, oh, oh yes, uh, yeah. Oh, because the thing we mash up Highlander two and Waterworld. What a, what a Jesus! <laughs> Wash your fucking mouth out. <laughs> so I come over to too high, too lander. My first question is: A car crash kills Connor McLeod, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's uh, like a, it's like an accidental no. swerve of a. Th- obviously, the quickening thing killed McLeod. Uh, a but... car crash kills Elsa McLeod. Yes, yes. Okay, he kills himself because he's a dickhead. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Sorry, but carry on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just checking. I got the details right. Yes, where go ahead. Go ahead. They are, somebody accidentally nudges the steering wheel and they swerve off and die or something. Yeah, well, imagine. Okay, you know how Mila Jovovich has a tendency to. I, I rather like Mila Flail Jovovich, about it? for no reason. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like her as an actress, but you can tell when she's like screamy she eyes and screaming and flailing, like you know, uh, visions in Resident Evil kind of thing. She's gonna fucking take that thing off the road herself. <laughs> He's gonna be struggling with all his Christopher Lambert powers. <laughs> That's the true Highlander quickening powers. The mighty Lambert forearms just trying to keep it straight. Trying to probably just look around looking for like the director thing. What the fuck is going on? (laughs) And then they hit a truck. And she like flies out the window and shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it really (laughs) gruesome? (laughs) It's Highlander. It's Highlander, surprisingly. I mean, it's a John Woo Highlander film. It'd be in slow motion. Yeah. She sees the dump out the corner and is like, I can get it, Dad. No, you can't. (laughs) What is this pretty bird doing in our car? Did you bring this with you, Mila? This was not helping. (laughs) Mila Jovovich just brings doves (laughs) in. I'm in a John Woo movie. He can't see him anyways. I can barely see. I'm driving this fucking car. And now there's a dove. Lambert's probably across the road. Yeah, Lambert crashes the car because he's blind. (laughs) Logical conclusion. You're welcome. Is this the clutch? This was my sort. He would absolutely have a katana handbrake. Oh, he's a little wanker. After the making of my favorite Highlander movie, Highlander 2, The Quickening, I had this sword that I used in one scene, even though I was using the different sword in the other scene, installed as the clutch in my car, my car that I call Ramirez. Yeah, the crash is also there to set up uh, Highlander 3 Tokyo Drift. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The only thing that has more sequels than Highlander is Fast and the Fucking Furious. I'd say just as rabid fan base. You mentioned that the fighting on holy ground thing is... You elaborate on that with... You can trap the quickening powers and channel that into people. And you establish the lore quite well. Kind of the, the new Highlander powers and stuff like that. Why does Quinn get like a cerebro style power? Is it because he's one of the like newish immortal guys or like he seems to have the empathy thing kind of just built in already? Does yeah. everybody have that? It was that. We kind we, of like... we kind of go there's I mean we did a bit of research on the kind of the further 
yeah. Highlander series and stuff, and they do bring in like the idea that there are immortals who have weird abilities occasionally. And so we thought we'd 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 bring in some of that with just kind of um, we have Elsa have her visions, and yeah, Quinn, like you say, has this kind of sense of where other where the other immortals are. Mm. I think it was yeah. So it's, it's the idea I think of. If you think about it from a franchise point of view, the idea that you're trying to branch out and do something different that you can build on rather than just, what's happened with these guys? Oh, they all live a long time. Anything else? No, just fucking live a long hard, time. Hard to kill. Hard to kill, yeah. Well, actually, no, not they're not. That hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're you really have, easy to, to kill. have to kill them very specifically. Yeah. Yes. It's not difficult. Yes. Yes. It's not, their necks aren't extra tough. No. No. <laughs> An immortal with a metal collar. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. solved. Yeah. It's those, um, it's those big neck things from uh, Wild Wild West, of all things. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh God. There, there's a crossover there that needs go. to happen. Good um, Lord. Yeah, so it's just... And also, I think we had the idea that, you know, it, um, possibly the fact that Quinn can't see and was blinded by Ferric, and so when he gets his immortal powers, he doesn't get his sight back, but he gets a sight back, as it were. So it's the quickening, giving him a little, little nudge in the right direction. Is that how Christopher Lambert sees the world as well. Yes. 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 This is established other... in canon. He yeah. is Daredevil. Yes. yes. <laughs> There's a casting we need. My name is Matt Murdock. <laughs> which, oh, we then, which we then confuse by having him fight Ben Affleck. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> which Daredevil? I mean, he couldn't be a worse Daredevil than Ben Affleck, right, guys? Uh, I mean, he I'm could. okay with him as Daredevil. Lambert could be worse. Yes, that would be fucking infinitely worse. <laughs> Jesus He'd make Christ. a great Punisher, though. Oh, oh now we're talking. Um, yeah. Connor he's, McLeod, he's very Punisher. T- Thomas Jane looks like he's Christopher Lambert's kid, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, with a normal-sized forehead. <laughs> I would I would have liked to have seen Christopher Lambert as Jigsaw versus Dolph Lundgren's Punisher. Punisher. Yeah, actually. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, that's not That bad works. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. I'd like to see him as Jacques Le Baton Le Baton from Section 8. Is that his name? Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So... It comes that time when I need to render my decision. I really enjoyed both pitches, as I said. I re- like I said, I think out of these, out of the five of us, I probably enjoy Highlander one the most. It was an interesting experience. You guys picked <laughs> one of the worst films mm. ever made. It's one of the biggest wastes of potential. Put it that way. That's what potential yeah. was there? It yeah. could be one of the worst films made with a competent. You know, cast and crew basically. who proved they'd already done it before. Yeah, it's the thing bringing back Lambert and and Mulcahy. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. Literally, you people made the first film, and that was either, depending on your opinion, either really good or tolerable or okay. And you done fucked up. This is atrocious. So, too high to Lando. I really enjoyed your elaboration on the Highlander mythos, and and Tim, you mentioned you kind of picked and chose some bits from the expanded sequels and things like that. And like I said, I've seen, I think, all of them, if not most of them. I like that you guys kind of took some of the bits that worked, the very, very few little bits that carry over into a sequel and and made that work as well. And the princes of the sequel-verse, I enjoyed the fact that you... It really explored the absolute power corrupts absolutely moment. And because... Yeah, it kind of makes sense for Connor to go a bit mental. And in contrast, Too High, Too Lander, you guys had him go off and be this kind of monk character. And I like the dichotomy between the two pitches of he goes batshit insane and turns into a villain, or he becomes a a hermit monk type guy. It's basically the Rashomon, Luke Skywalker stuff in Last Jedi. Kind of, yeah. Between the both of us. It's like, one one, he's a crazy murdering bastard who needs to be stopped. Other one, he's just a quiet monk on his own. (laughs) Depending if you ask Kylo Ren or not. Yeah. Christopher Lambert is evil. <laughs> now I can't get the phrase space nuns from the planet Zeist out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely had. 
I enjoyed your casting of uh, Josh Brolin as well, sequel verse. It was an interesting choice. He's returning from your Terminator pitch, which I thought was... Brolin, Brolin. And will be every week oh, until the end of time. You, you were the Framptonites, now you're the Brolinites. Is that what's, going, what's the, happening here? The Brolins. The Brolins. <laughs> the yeah. Super Mario Brolins. Ah, Tim wins this week with that joke. <laughs> Not the team, just Tim. What? <laughs> It's the best Mario joke. It's been my, like, oh, that's um, the golden snitch of this episode all along. <laughs> it's a me. <laughs> Fuck you, Jack. <laughs> it's me, Matthew Stott. <laughs> it's a me, Christopher Lambert. Oh, the, him and Christopher Lambert saying in his own voice, his own oh, weird yeah. accent, the T at the end of Lambert. Mm, oh, not right. Then Sivas Daniel Spine, mm, doesn't it? Not right. The quickening Daniel Spine. So, the winners of Highlander 2 are going to be the Princes of the Sequel Verse. Hey. Congratulations, gentlemen. I thought it explored and expanded it in a way, and as you rightfully said, Stuart, kills off all the sequels. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I, I would like to do a third one, but set thousands of years in the future where yeah. they've been repopulated with immortals because, hey, maybe the gathering didn't work. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, certainly possible. Uh, but fuck that, it'd be too expensive. <laughs> Congratulations, gentlemen. We've got Thank you. To- Thank you look forward to from both teams coming up because in the next episode we will be discussing poltergeist 2 everybody are we excited no i fucking hate poltergeist i was gonna say i've got to go back and watch poltergeist again <laughs> i i seem to remember it's a lot of creepy set pieces that don't hold together very well some shit at the window some shit in the cupboard some shit on the tv yeah, it's, Done. is it the one with the clown yeah yeah some some primo craig t nelson Oh yeah. oh yeah not going to complain about Craig T. Nelson I do love me some Craig T. Nelson yeah I think Poltergeist 2 is going to be uh, an interesting one because I don't like the original either so. oh god none of us do that's yeah. interesting well I say none oh, of us wait, so wait, I've got to watch again oh, I've not watched any of them damn it oh. <laughs> you were the chosen one just <laughs> I, I, the horrible realisation that I'll have to watch Poltergeist 2 as well Poltergeist yeah. <laughs> 2 basically I will say this much like most of the things with regards to like Highlander Rasmussen being a bit eh um Arguably, this does open the door for the fact that the, if the sequel is so much worse, it elevates the first one. That's a good point because you get the kind of rotten tomatoes drop off. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. we go from like sixty something, which isn't great, and we, nope. we we do pitch ourselves as the sequels to good movies, but then we go from sixty something to zero. It's like yeah. that needs sequelizing. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the 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 just the U turn from I think we've got something. Oh no. <laughs> it's a functioning and decent oh dear god what have they done in the second one yep. yeah exactly is that is that the biggest differential or was Mulan greater uh, Mulan's greater yeah Mulan's got much higher than 60 something if I remember correctly it was in the 80s or something like that so yeah that's a I think that's probably going to be the biggest drop-off. I don't know if there's any other zero Nothing's going to be able to be able to... to, to talk. Oh, actually, no, 60% drop. You could go from 90 to 30 and still... Oh, yeah, but I, I don't yeah. think there's uh, any other zero percenters coming oh, up no, no, this no, season. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I don't think so. Yeah, there's a little tease for you, folks. <laughs> oh, 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 hello. And we will be back soon to discuss Poltergeist 2. Stay spooky, you little bastards. <laughs> you can't Sean Connery and Poltergeist... <laughs> Yes, he plays the poltergeist. The poltergeist. <laughs> he plays the house. Yes. <laughs> Step inside. <laughs> <laughs>
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.